0: Hello and welcome to Food To Go, the podcast brought to you by New Food. I'm Bethan Grills and as ever I'm joined by the other members of the New Food editorial team, Abby and Josh. Hi Beth. Hi Beth. Hey guys, so we're discussing emerging allergens today that's the potential allergens we might see in our food system as a result of the new innovative food types we are now developing and I have actually had a well-earned episode off so Josh Abby, I'm very excited to listen in on your interviews uh, today so shall we go ahead and get started
1: Yes, that's right. Myself and Abby are delighted to be joined by two titans of the allergen research world. Dr. Richie Gupta, Professor of Pediatrics and Medicine at Northwestern University Feinberg School, founding director of the Centre for Food Allergy and Asthma Research, and Janet Jobrack, National Allergy Expert and Principal of the Food Allergy Pros. How are you both today?
2: Great. Thanks so much for having us.
3: Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
1: Perfect. Well, as I said, when we wanted two experts to discuss emerging allergens, you you guys were the first people that came to mind. I think it's safe to say that you know your stuff. We've got some questions for you to help clear this topic up for us a little bit. What exactly do we mean when we say emerging allergens? Jennifer, just put that to you first.
3: Sure. So I think it's important to understand that there are some top allergens, some most frequently cited allergens and allergic reactions Nine in the U.S. are labeled. I think it's 14 in the United Kingdom. And these are allergens that data show have caused the vast majority of allergic reactions to food. But there are 170 different foods that have been documented as causing allergic reactions. And among these, we see fruits and vegetables. We see seeds, legumes. These are, I think, what we would refer to as emerging allergens. Not that they haven't caused problems for folks in the past, but they have not been recognized regulatorily as the most prevalent allergens to cause uh, reactions.
1: And Ruchi, is that pretty much summed up as far as you're concerned, or, or do you want to add anything to that?
2: That's great, but just adding, you know, just the prevalence numbers, this is what our lab know, focuses on just understanding that whole emerging public health impact. So, you know, our most recent numbers, we found that about 10% of adults and about 8% of children in the United States have food allergies. And, you know, a lot of the world is starting to assess how common food allergies are becoming. And we're getting better numbers, you know, across the world, but still need a lot of work in this. But Again, very, very common. And, and to Jen's point, you know, the what we call in the U.S. the top nine are peanut, tree nuts, you know, egg, milk, shellfish, finfish, soy, wheat, and sesame, which is quite an emerging allergen and is uh, finally getting some recognition in the United States. I know in Europe it has been for, for quite a while. But again, just very, very common, one in 10 adults, one in 13 kids, um, this is uh, what we really call an epidemic here.
4: So h- how aware would you say the food industry is about emerging allergens and should it be worried, do you think? Richie? you
2: can take that one first. Sure. I mean, it's not really worry. It's more awareness, right? Like they, I do think the food industry, you know, keeps their eye on this and they are, as they, you know, should and are, uh, be concerned, right? They want to make sure that, you know, people who eat their foods are safe. You know, and are are enjoying them, and I think that's their ultimate goal. So, you know, in that last year, the FASTER Act, which was passed here, added sesame to the list of top nine allergens that uh, need to be included on the labels. So that's that's a big step, and I think industry is preparing for that here. But yes, overall, industry, you know, this is pretty much what they do, recalls, you know, when we, we met with industry a while ago, recalls are, you know, one of the most expensive things for them. So how do they prevent that? How do they stay on top of it? Know what's coming out? Know, you know, the legal implications, know the data and yeah, just partner with us and be aware of trends that are happening around the world. Great. And Jen, would you like to add to that
3: as well? Ruchi said some important points on this. I'd like to add, that the awareness of food allergies as a public health issue has grown dramatically over the last decade and a half, to in large part to the data that we've been collecting, the work of advocates, and uh, the overall higher level of attention to food allergies as a public health concern. And I agree, I don't think it's a matter of worry, I think it's a matter of vigilance and attention. We see Food companies have also had to react to increased regulatory environments. So here in the United States, the uh, Food Allergen Labeling and Consumer Protection Act of 2004 created the rubric for labeling of the most common allergens. And as as Ruchi referred to, uh, that was amended last year with, in addition to the, the top eight allergens that were previously mentioned. We now have to have food companies here label explicitly for the presence of sesame. But we're still seeing problems, even with good manufacturing procedures, which have also been strengthened uh, as a result of the regulatory environment and passages of statutes around the country on labeling of foods uh, in restaurants, labeling of foods even uh, on store shelves we still see food allergen-related recalls, specifically undeclared allergens in grocery items. are the, It's the number one reason for recall in the United States is the presence of undeclared allergens in food. So fortunately, the overall environment is better. The level of vigilance and diligence is greater. The attention paid increases. And I would say that's true for both manufacturers as well as for consumers who increasingly are being educated how to read food labels and ask questions and the availability of technology, manufacturers posting information specifically on their websites about their manufacturing environments, etc. Uh, I think overall, there's a higher level of awareness and vigilance.
1: Well, as authors of New Foods Recall Roundup, myself and Abby are very, very well aware of the phrase underclient allergen because I reckon we see it, what do you reckon, Abby, three, four times a week, minimum?
4: Literally, yeah, minimum. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Those two words are very, very familiar to us both. So, I mean, me and Jen spoke a bit about this before we are on air, but what ingredients are on your watch list? Which aspects of food manufacturing do you think are, are going to become a problem in the future? So if, so one example I've, I've Come across is, is pea protein, for example, where we transition to pea protein as a protein alternative. Peas and legumes, chances are we're going to see more and more people becoming allergic to legumes as we move forward. Is that true? Are there certain aspects that you're worried about in particular as, as, as allergen experts?
3: So uh, the data that I've seen, uh, largely out of the, the EU, does reference legumes, as you just mentioned, uh, green peas, chickpeas, lentils, kidney beans, uh, fruits, kiwi specifically, but also there has been, to my knowledge, fatal anaphylaxis in the UK caused by banana. Peaches have some cross reactivity with some pollens as well. Buckwheat I've seen some concerns about. It's a major, major allergen in Japan. So I think when we talk about emerging allergens, we also want to be careful to delineate where it is emerging and where it is already a problem. So um, I guess I'm putting on a Slightly Western lens on this answer and saying that buckwheat has not been a serious, uh, or shouldn't say serious, uh, buckwheat has not been a common allergen in the U.S. or maybe in Western Europe, but it is already a, a concern in Japan as it is used much more commonly there. It's also used in certain crepes in France and in Russian blinis, and then seeds. We've referenced the sesame seed being pulled out as a as an allergen. Dr. Gupta's data is very has really helped us frame that issue as an important call out in labeling as a as a serious allergen. I would venture to say that the entire category of seeds, poppy, sunflower, pumpkin, melon seeds which are eaten in certain communities, chia seeds, this is something I'd be looking at carefully.
1: And Rich is there anything to add from your side is there, is there a certain ingredient that keeps you awake at night? <laughs>
2: No, I mean, I think Jen's list was very complete. I, I am so glad Sesame had kept me awake because we saw really severe reactions all over the world with Sesame and, and more and more children and adults developing Sesame allergy. And, you know, it is just very difficult because it's such a hidden ingredient in so many things. So happy that that's done. And now, you know, keeping an eye for the ones that... uh Jen mentioned, legumes. definitely, the fruits are interesting. So anyone listening, you know, who does have that kiwi or apples or tomatoes, um, it is really important because the other issue is, you know, food conditions, right? There are food allergies, which can be life-threatening, but there are a lot of other conditions caused by food and really knowing what they are is really critical. So a lot of the fruits could be a true, you know, IgE-mediated food allergy, or they can be what Jen was referring to, oral allergy syndrome, where you're allergic to the pollen and not necessarily the protein in the food. And those tend to be less severe and and really focused on the oral mucosa as you eat the food and um, less likely to go into the more severe anaphylactic reactions. So it's just a very important as we see so many overall food conditions emerging, new ones, we really need to be aware of what is going on. The other one is, you know, the meat allergy, which is alpha-gal, which is another different mechanism because it's tick-based. So, you know, just being aware that there is a reaction to a food and what is it and which ones do you really need proper management, which ones may have treatments. uh, And, you know, just, getting that very straightened out for both the industry and individuals.
3: I'm really glad you mentioned alpha-gal. I had done a brain fart on that, Ruchi. So that's a really interesting one because the tick bite that can uh, precipitate alpha-gal, that tick is migrating northward in North America. So it used to be a more common allergen, as far as I can recall, in southern parts of the U.S., and now we're starting to see people develop alpha-gal as we move further north because due to climate change, the tick is looking for a more hospitable climate.
1: Jill, I think that's a really, really interesting point, and I know we've spoken about this in, in the past, but that the global supply chain, as far as the food industry is concerned now, it truly is global. So that idea of, of different allergens being an issue in certain parts of the world and the others, I think it's really important. And then you've, you've mentioned another layer on top of that, which is climate change, and we're seeing different foods being eaten in different parts of the world and will be eaten in the future in different parts of the world. There's so many moving parts to this, aren't there? There's so many different things that could influence what we're allergic to and, and when.
3: Right. No, it's, it's true. What were maybe 100 years ago, local foods are now available internationally. So what is em- an emerging allergen in one community may have been a long-standing known concern in another.
2: That's right. Yep, exactly. I mean, the way we've eaten, if you really think about it, has changed so drastically. Um, The local farmers versus now internationally grown coming from anywhere. um, Most industry partner with, you know, places around the world to get ingredients. Um, It's just, it's broadened so much. And, you know, the world has become smaller, which is important and great. But what has that done to how we eat, how we farm, you know, so many changes.
4: Yeah, those are really interesting points. And speaking of changes, more people are now choosing a plant based diet. And to what extent do you think that the drive for plant based products are furthering allergen growth?
2: Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm all for a plant based diet, <laughs> I think they're healthier. I'm vegetarian myself, so maybe a little biased here, but I, I do think it's a healthier way to eat and live. And it, it's nice to see a movement towards that Um, as things change, you know, in whatever direction you're going to, you're going to see, you know, changes in other aspects. I mean, and that's how we talk about food allergies a lot of times, you know, what changed in the environment, you know, the way we eat,
1: you know, our cleanliness,
2: et cetera, you know, there's yin and yang, there's always going to be something in impacts. So in terms of, are we going to see more or different food allergies possibly it's hard to it's hard to really say and i i would like to say you know it'll just be noticed because people are eating it more right things like legumes that jen had mentioned originally you know peas chickpeas you know some of these ingredients that are used for you know that substitutes and people may be experiencing reactions to them now that they're trying them for the first time i don't think it would lead necessarily to an increase I think it's just if more people are consuming them, but again, as a researcher, nothing is for sure, and we need to really, you know, better understand it as as it moves in that direction. Absolutely,
3: Jen. I completely agree. Not surprisingly, with my named colleague, I worry just a bit about the marketing of products as healthy or healthful not because they don't have important nutritional benefits and often environmental benefits because plant-based products can be a little easier on the environment, but I worry that people will conflate healthful with less allergenic, if you will, or in some cases, and this is anecdotal, not supported by data that I've seen, people think they're not really investigating What's in that healthful food? So, for instance, again, anecdotal, uh, was in a restaurant recently, and there was seitan on the menu. And um, my dining companion asked what it was. I know that it's a wheat derivative, but the the person serving us said it was a soy derivative. She thought it was related to tofu. That's a small moment, but it makes me wonder if people are properly educated about what these plant-based foods contain. And whether labeling of these food items, which I hope we'll get into in a moment, whether the labeling of these items is accurately and thoroughly and completely uh, elucidating what all of those plant-based ingredients and substitutes are. The last thing I'll say on this for the moment is that if you're making plant-based copies of foods that have traditionally been Animal based, you're also, you may be, companies may be adding additives which people would not expect, right? They can be emulsifiers, they can be flavor enhancers. So it's incumbent on the companies producing these alternatives or replacing plant uh, animal based foods with plant based foods to be as descriptive and thorough as possible in the ingredient disclosure.
1: I think you're absolutely spot on, Jen. And and I'll confess, even as someone that works in the industry and writes in the industry, I I would not have known that was a weak derivative. So I think that's a really, really important point to make. And you've led me straight on to my next question. Anyone listening would think that we'd prepared for this. Do you think manufacturers should be developing ways to ensure their products are suitable for as many people as possible? I remember a conversation I had with a representative from Eat Eat Just, which manufactures cultured products, cultured chicken in particular. And there didn't seem to be a way to manufacture a certain product without using legumes, for example. And I do feel some sympathy for them because the, the job's hard enough as it is to try and create chicken without any chicken in. But do you think there is a way or there are methods that manufacturers should be employing to make sure that as many people as possible can consume their products?
3: Well, I'm not an expert in food manufacturing per se, but I will add this. The use of language and ingredient information, whether it's label on the package, information available on your website, the most explicit and detailed you can be in delineating what's in the food and what's in the manufacturing environment in which the food is made can help Consumers make more informed choices. Let me let me give you a for instance. As previously mentioned, some of the top allergens that we've come to label in the U.S. and and UK and EU are categories of food: uh, tree nuts, fish, shellfish come to mind. And in some cases, you may have a person who is allergic to one specific tree nut but can eat eight others. And if a package Says may contain or contain, may contain tree nuts, for instance, that may cause that consumer to completely reject the package or the product. But if the product says may contain hazelnuts and hazelnuts aren't a problem for that c- consumer, then perhaps that consumer is more likely to purchase that package because they feel that there's not a risk of, of allergen cross contact. Now, this is not a podcast where we're talking about the ins and outs of labeling and the use of language of, of contains versus may contains. And I know Ruchi has knows this topic like the back of her hand, and uh, so we're not really getting into that. But I will say that I'm a strong advocate in at being manufacturers being as explicit as possible. Labeling, and particularly precautionary labeling, is never intended to be a substitute for using good manufacturing procedures to segregate ingredients, to clean equipment between runs, and to avoid allergen cross-contact in manufacturing or in pre-manufacturing, such as in collecting crops. And I think to the extent that companies can be as pristine as, and explicit as possible in sharing their story of how the food gets to the shelf with their consumers, their intended consumers. I think that they are would be serving that population quite well.
1: And just to add before Richie jumps in here that Jen did deliver an excellent session on precautionary allergen labelling at Food Bev Horizons 2021. So if you do want to hear more about that, perhaps this isn't the forum to discuss it, but I do know a forum where it was discussed. So do log on to the new food website and, uh, and sign up to view that on demand. Richie, anything to add from you?
2: Yeah, no, that's great. That's perfect. I completely agree. I mean, manufacturers should absolutely, you know, be very aware and very clear. You know, it was interesting. We met with industry partners and, you know, my first reaction was, oh, why, you know, why can't you make it more clear? Why, why all this PAL? And, and, you know, they pushed back saying, well, do you know how hard it is? And it's so interesting because it goes back to, we need to just understand each other and we need to support each other. We ended up writing a paper with them talking about what are the major areas that are difficult for them, you know, around this whole idea of food allergies. And it was really eye-opening for me because, you know, they there are a lot of challenges. You know, one of them said, we don't know if the burlap bag they use to pick strawberries was previously used to pick peanuts, you know, like the cross contact. How do you know when your food items and ingredients are coming from all over the world and you are not, you know, necessarily watching every single step carefully? So, you know, when we started talking about the whole PAL and how do you label and how clear can you be? Um, a lot of these things are very, very challenging. From the PAL standpoint, and I'm so glad Jen did a whole talk on it, so I'm not going to get into it too much, but we did do a survey with consumers and one thing that they asked for when we said, how would you like your items labeled? You know, they just said, tell us it's not suitable for us. Instead of giving us 20 labels and then they have to make up their minds on, oh, okay, may contains seems a little bit more dangerous than manufactured in a facility. So I'll eat manufactured in a facility, but not may contain when there's no threshold limit is challenging. You know, everyone's making up their own minds. So they just wanted clarity, say not suitable, don't eat, you know, like be very clear to us. And, and I think that is, is the message for all of us and for industry, like how, how clear can we be and how can we support consumers the most? Yeah,
4: absolutely. That makes so much sense. Like clarity. Yeah, definitely. I feel like everything can be so confusing. It doesn't really need to be. But we were talking about how plant-based is on the rise at the moment. Something else that is becoming quite popular is insect protein. What impact do you think that this will have in terms of emerging allergens?
2: Wow. Yeah. Now this is a a whole area that's very complex and there are some cross-reactive proteins, like cricket and crustaceans that we're learning about. Um, I don't know otherwise, you know, how much, I mean, and the cockroaches, you know, we talk about that. I don't know if we want to get into that, but they also have overlay with shellfish. So insect protein and understanding which ones may correspond with common food allergens is going to be very important. Um, yeah, I guess that's, <laughs> that's all I have to say for that. Yeah, no,
4: that's great. Jen, do you have anything else further to add?
3: I agree. I think this is an area that may require further study. We know that insects and crustaceans, they're both in the arthropod family. They have an exoskeleton, right? So crustacean allergens are lagged as top, you know, in the top eight, top nine, top 14. They're potentially quite severe. And so the cross-reactivity of insects, insect proteins with crustacean proteins is the primary food allergy concern. I think for cockroaches, it's. I think there've been some inhalation studies, but, but not necessarily, I don't know. I must confess, I've never been tempted to eat cockroach. So I don't know much about that. I must confess.
1: I mean, my background is I did a history degree but it sounds like I'm going to need a zoology degree as well to understand sort of where we're going in terms of emerging allergens. But I would absolutely have no idea that a cockroach would, would, would have anything in common with shellfish. So that's something that we're going to have to grapple with, Abby, so get the, uh, get the biology textbooks out because I think we're going to need them. I'm aware that we're rapidly running out of time with you both, so I will wrap the last sort of two questions that I've got I- into one big one. With everything that we've spoken about today, with everything that's coming over the horizon, so to speak, what, what should food regulators be doing in preparation for the onset of some of these emerging allergens and bioregulators let's say for example the fda i mean should the fda be looking to add to to what i've called the big eight and that seems to be the big nine for example are we not quite there yet will we be there in a couple of years what What are your thoughts on regulation
3: well Root, you want me to start this one <laughs> <laughs> go for it okay so let me break down your question into two parts i think josh part One has to do with what can manufacturers do. Number one, they can adhere to good manufacturing processes that exclude ingredients that are not intended to be in the food from that food. Whatever those ingredients are, whether they are known allergens or not, be very vigilant about putting in only what's supposed to be there. And then label it thoroughly, label it accurately. Number two, this is not pertaining to the manufacturing environment, but it is amazing. We've looked at this how difficult it can be for consumers to provide feedback to food companies. Some food companies don't have, they may have a form on their website. Some dinosaurs still have uh, uh, numbers that you can call but a way for consumers to share and report if they've had any sort of adverse reaction or even a concern. Increase the manner in which customers can engage with you, provide feedback, have your ear to the ground on any emerging patterns you're seeing in people having adverse reactions, people having questions about ingredients that you may not have gotten questions about before. Uh, On the FDA and regulatory side, one of the, I know how long it took for the FASTER Act, which adds sesame to the list of named allergens, as Ruchi mentioned previously. I know how long that took because I started working on that issue, I think seven or eight years before the bill was actually passed. But the, the good news is that the FASTER Act changed the way that future allergens can be added for regulatory oversight in the future. So one would hope that if additional allergens need to be flagged for labeling purposes, that that could happen more quickly than it did for sesame. And I think the FDA does a a fairly uh, good job, uh, given its resources, tracking emerging allergens, tracking allergic reactions, and, and so forth. But that is only as good as the data they get from consumers who call and report problems they're having. There's an onus on consumers to share that feedback, fair or otherwise. The other uh, last piece I'll say is that one of the areas that FDA continues to look at is threshold data. Uh, Thresholds being the amount of an allergen that needs to be present to elicit a reaction, either in an individual or in a population. We don't really have reliable threshold data, which would be useful to manufacturers to understand that if, let's say, you know, an item has, you know, one part per million of a particular allergen, if they knew that that would not elicit a reaction in the population, they may feel more comfortable using that ingredient. But in the absence of threshold data, I think it's imperative that labels be strengthened, that I would love to see Companies do away with the phrase natural flavorings. I think that hides a lot of plant and even animal derivatives that are used for flavor enhancement, but they do not have nutritional value. They may not have nutritional value. They can uh, trigger an allergic response. So those are some of the things that manufacturers can do. And consumers also have a role to play in sharing their experiences.
1: Richie, anything to add from yourself on the regulatory side? I mean, do you see the FDA needing to add fair allergens to that list anytime soon?
2: Yeah, well, we're watching it. So we've been doing the prevalence surveys and we are actually working on a proposal to make a validated food allergy tool and a short form that now, thanks to the FASTER Act, it also in the FASTER Act was that at least in the U.S., you know there has to be some monitoring of food allergies, which there hasn't been very clear monitoring, I and mean, that's why our lab picked up doing these regular prevalence surveys. But we're happy to turn that back over, and I think as they continue to follow the trends, it's important to stay ahead of it. You know, so we publish our data, we push out what we see as the next most common. I completely agree with Jen that the sesame took way too long and we need to find a way to speed it up. When you look at Europe and, you know, the 14 allergens and, and you know, as we travel around Europe and you see how, how well it's all documented, you know, we're a, a little bit behind in that. And, you know, we published a paper on sesame and then and put in all the, the data we could, but how do we speed this up so we stay ahead of it a little bit better in the future? And I, I do, you know, and I would love to work with you know all the entities to make sure that happens if we have the data but i think that is very important and then for the manufacturers everything that jen said is is spot on so for the manufacturers and the fda i mean all of us just partnering and you know staying ahead of us and and being aware of the data that's coming out and understanding it because i think all of our ultimate goal is to keep people safe and enjoying foods as much as possible.
1: I think that's a brilliant phrase to end on, Richie. I think we all need to be enjoying food. And I certainly do. And yeah, that, that ethos of working together, I think is really, really important. I think for some in the industry, there is kind of a us and them approach when it comes to allergens and, and we absolutely don't want that to be the case. Thank you so much to you both for sharing your time with us this evening slash this morning. This has been brilliant, so interesting, so great to hear. And so yeah, thank you so much for your time and I really hope we can speak to you again very soon.
3: Thank you all.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. This is such an important topic. Really appreciate it.
1: Well, Beth, you've had your feet up for the best part of half an hour. What did you think of what Richie and Jen had to say?
0: <laughs> no, I really enjoyed it, guys. I was very shocked, actually, that undeclared allergens is the number one reason for recalls in the US. That's as a little bit of a worrying statistic. Like, why haven't we got that
1: right yet so i don't know i reckon if you had written enough recall roundups you wouldn't be shocked <laughs> as me and abby said in the interview that's all we write every week no i take your point though like you feel like pathogens in the food foreign objects that kind of thing just happens now and again but i think mentioning allergen on the label something that we just should be getting right mm,
0: i know like i just that really just blew my mind, that statistic. We actually recently attended GFSI and one of the issues which was raised was the gap between manufacturers and retailers in terms of the recall process. So we focus on getting products out quickly to the consumer. But do we have the same focus on getting products away from the consumers? And I know here you were talking about kind of emerging allergens, but I think that's it's really important. I think that's so just interesting to bring up in terms of you know whether or not we're actually handling the recall properly and I I believe it was uh, Lisa Robinson from Ecolab
1: who highlighted
0: the importance of being prepared and aligned within your company essentially having a, a food safety culture and if you can do that you can eliminate the complexity behind recalls and she also said you know sort of building relationships with suppliers and experts is just so important because if you don't have someone with a particular set of skills, then you need to have that expertise on speed dial because then you need to call upon someone in a crisis. So, I mean, I know you didn't touch on it too much in that interview, but what do you make of kind of the the recall scenario at the minute, guys?
1: Yeah, I'm just thinking, I mean, as Beth said, we had some really interesting conversations at GFSI. Something Howard said, Howard Popola from, from Kroger shocked me. So, that recalls are on the rise, and the stats do appear to back that up. It's a worry, isn't it? It's a worry that everything else, I feel like as an industry, we're, we're getting it right on most things. Less people are dying of foodborne pathogens. Certainly, don't do that many foreign objects in our food anymore. And no one can deny that our food's very, very safe at present. So, it is a slight cause of concern that recalls are on the rise. Beth, I know you've mentioned sort of previously on the back of GFSI the use of maybe AI
0: yeah.
1: to notify consumers of recalls. Obviously, we see the, the checkout list stores opening like now, Amazon in particular, doing, sort of making great headway in that. If we can track a consumer leaving a shop without paying and know what they've bought or at least picked up, can we then track what they've purchased and let them know if there's a recall? I don't know how comfortable I am about that, but it's interesting, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I actually had a conversation with Howard uh, Pupala from Broga about this because he was, you know, saying basically that it is quite a slow process, the recall situation, and it shouldn't really be because, you know, it's quite urgent that... As soon as a consumer goes out of the store, that's kind of where the process stops. That's where it becomes more difficult to recall a product. So what he was suggesting, absolutely, Josh, was kind of having AI systems built into the checkouts because essentially it would be quite easy to know who bought an item and then you'd be able to notify them directly whether or not there was a recall. The problem is, is data protection would hinder that but kind of what he was saying to me was you know well the government knows what car we drive they know you know our details why can't we use this to enhance food safety that is such a like a whole other like wormhole (laughs) to go down really but the other interesting thing that he mentioned was the fact that there isn't a standardization in terms of so you'll this from writing your recall roundups, how often is it that you write things like lot date and then the next sentence you'll be writing expired on? And it's all completely different formats. There was actually a case that, that Howard mentioned to me, which was about a baby food manufacturer. And they had to send in their own people to identify the affected products because they were the only ones able to identify the codes they had used. So They had to go into the factory to go, that's the recalled item. Because the problem is what you don't want to do in a recall situation is recall the whole lot because then you're just wasting product that is perfectly safe and obviously, as we know, food waste is like a massive issue think about all of the energy that the production of that food would occur and all of that would just be wasted so what you need to do is to be able to identify it but the system isn't standardized I don't understand why we aren't speaking the same language when it comes to recalls and there you go look that's my rant
1: (laughs) No, it's a good run. It is madness, isn't it? If we just steer the conversation back towards kind of emerging allergens, the whole overall, I mean, Richie and Jen, as we said in, in our interview, if you want to know about allergens, go and see them. Like They are the absolute knowledge power base of allergens, but particularly in the US. The whole vibe I got from that interview, which did worry me a little bit, I just feel like we're asleep at the wheel a little bit as industry when it comes to emerging allergens. We're forging so much progress, and rightly so, with innovative food. We spoke there about cultured meat, for example, which is super exciting. Jen mentioned saitan, which is another really, really exciting food stuff. Are we actually really considering the allergen risk that can come with it? Because when you speak to the right people, they're sort of screaming, saying this is a massive problem that's coming down the tracks, and we're not really hearing a lot about it. I mean, that example of saitan, I said, In the interview, I'll admit, I wouldn't know that Saitan was a weak derivative and I write about food every day. It's my job. That's a worry.
0: Yeah. And I think the final point to mention here is what's interesting is – what is a major allergen so they have significantly fewer allergens in the US than they do in the UK and and you know what's what's interesting is that there's going to be emerging allergens in places like you know the UK and the US which are already major allergens elsewhere so what was mentioned there was was buckwheat wasn't it because that that's commonly consumed in Japan and i think you know that's it's going to be really fascinating so i think emerging allergens we're just going to see more and more Really being added to the list. I just wonder when it's gonna when it's gonna end. And I also wonder why we're seeing so many allergens. Why are we becoming so allergic to food?
4: Yeah, that was what was surprising for me as well, like lesser the recalls, more so the fact that we're becoming more allergic to, I guess, newer products. So we mentioned pea protein as well, talking about that. And yeah, buckwheat was another one that apparently it's quite a common problem in Japan, like you said. And it's, yeah, it's things that we just don't realize. Like I've actually weirdly found out that I'm intolerant to quinoa now, which is really, really random, but it's something that. I think, I mean, I used to eat all the time and I didn't have a problem, but now I'm like finding that I'm intolerant to it. So just weird. I find that really interesting and really weird as well. The fact that these are all things that either you can just develop later on, but also that I guess we're getting new food products, which contain all these things that we didn't realize. So it is an interesting one.
0: Yeah, it's a case of we're eating more, I suppose, bigger quantities of food that we would ordinarily eat in smaller portions, and that could potentially have an influence. And I also do think, I mean, I'm not going to claim I'm I'm any sort of scientist here, but I do think there's a link to gut health here and how the food is processed. I don't know, maybe that's a bit... (laughs) conspiracy
1: it wouldn't be a food to go podcast about an unfounded theory would it I mean it's usually me saying coming up of something <laughs> with absolutely zero scientific input but Beth's taking the mantle
0: I don't know do you know I, I just feel like we're going to start to see more and more evidence coming out of, about our microbiomes and that they're not in a good place and that maybe that's got something to do with gut health I don't know. We shall see, I suppose. But I'm afraid that is all we have time for. As much as I would love to continue ranting... Oh, gosh, I could I could rant on this, for, this topic for, for absolutely ages. But no, guys, really, really amazing interviews there. Thank you so much to Chi and Jen for joining us on Food to Go. And most of all, thank you to you, our listeners, for lending us your ears once again. We'll be chatting to you shortly on another episode of Food to Go. But until then, take care and stay safe.